Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. Hi, everybody, and this is your host of the Safety Doc Podcast, David Perodin. Welcome to Safety Doc Podcast number 25. This is apparently the milestone episode, according to a number of podcasters who have told me, if you can get to 25 podcasts, the odds are you'll keep going, and let's hope that that continues. Um very unusual weather here in Wisconsin. I spoke of being out on a bike ride a few weeks ago, and I would have to put the snow tires on the bike right now. We had an inch of snow. It quickly melted, but it is rainy and cold outside. Um, I do miss a month ago being in Orlando, Florida in the mid-80s and sun. So, yeah, been a, a long, cold spring here in Wisconsin. Anyway, uh, today, though, we're going to be talking about um, kind of society's shrinking environment for children and what that, what that means. And when I talk about that, I'm not talking about loss of habitat. I'm, I'm, I'm talking more about cultural influence, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain that. I have a few articles. Um, something I'm doing in this podcast, which I, which I wanted to do and a few others, and I intend to do in some future podcasts is, uh, I went in and, and polled a number of, um, responses that people made to the, to one article. And I went through and I found some quotes from those to kind of give you the flavor. This is where the rhetoric comes in. Remember, we always talk about the rhetoric. People believe the rhetoric, the rhetoric. And actually, one of the things that, that when Tom and I talk, we'll, it'll be sanctuary city and what people believe a sanctuary city is and, and what the obligation then is for local law enforcement in a sanctuary city because of what's been portrayed in media and so forth and, and how, that's, how that, that just catches steam. Um, there was a hashtag, um, hashtag sanctuary cities um, a, few, a few days ago. And I took note under there of what was being posted, and the majority of it was completely inaccurate. You could feel a passion from people, but again, it was inaccurate information. And I'm going to get into um, some significant changes that have happened over the last few decades in children's exposure to the outside environment and give some rationale for, for how some of those things have come about, what some of the statistics look like, uh, what some of the surveys look like, also more or less the rhetoric or the, that anecdotal feedback from people. I'm going to give you some of my own personal stories about when I was a kid. So I grew up, and you know it was the late 70s, very early 80s, when I would say I was, quote, unquote, a kid, you know, in that about 10-year-old range. Um, and, and what life looked like for me um, at that time. And also, what is happening in terms of safety and child development right now in the way that parents, in the way that society is responding um, to, to children as far as, um, you know, we, we've heard, and I'm going to talk about this specifically, but a mother um, who was arrested because she let her nine-year-old daughter walk to a park on her own and, and things like that. So um, a few things I'm going to talk about is, um, you know, I, I bike the entire town, and I didn't live in a big town. I lived in a town of about, you know, 12, at that time about 1,200 people. It was geographically spread out over a hill um, and, and kind of a valley. So, so I mean, you know. A pretty good amount of space to bike, um, but I would bike the whole town, you know, just crazy with my with my with my bike, and then uh, getting up in the morning, meeting up with my friends, and going fishing, and uh, waiting in, until the noon siren. They used to do the noon siren, um, 
and, and that was an indicator that no, it was time to go home. Uh, but you know, we're not carrying cell phones around with us, and, and you know, always always had a watch, but outside of that, um, didn't have didn't have a way to, to stay in communication. And then another podcaster on the four hundred five media uh, shared about when he was growing up, and and he built a fort, I believe, with some other students and or not some other students, some other peers, kids in the neighborhood, and things they learned from from doing that. And I was involved in some pretty significant fort building back in my day across the neighborhood. And and each one of those had a different bit of flavor and and we learned something different from those. Uh, but something again you just don't see these days. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely definitely want to talk. Definitely want to talk about that. So let us get started. So um, I'm going to just double check my materials here. So, yep, this one I don't need. And the first article um, I'm going to talk about is How Children Lost the Right to Roam in Four Generations. Now, some of these are not super current doesn't matter because the current articles are reflecting the same exact content this one is by uh, david derbyshire june 2007 and uh, what he does and i'm going to post this so th- those of you who are watching this on youtube lucky you uh, i'm doing more with youtube as far as posting graphics and posting overlays and definitions of terms and things like that if you are not subscribed to youtube um, the, uh, which is most of you. I, my Twitter following has gone gone up significantly. The analytics are looking awesome on Twitter. The most impressions we've ever had in a month. You know, we're we're going to probably end the month. You know, at fifty five thousand impressions, which is which is incredible, uh, considering the show really, I mean, didn't exist. You know, five months ago, um, and and we'll, we're in the range of about six hundred followers now, which is again great because. You know, we started from nothing. So, um, yeah, I, I always get a, I, I get a kick out of it because, you know, you get you get followers, you get genuine followers, you look at their interest, you know, and, and you can take their background and, and see where it's related to what you're presenting. And then you also get the followers who say, I can get you 4,000 more Twitter followers, and, and I, I do this special marketing, and that's like, okay, <laughs> I'm not following you back. Uh, and and hopefully you know at some point you'll discontinue following me because you're just trying to market something to me. But but really I'm getting a number um, of of and I don't follow those folks back. But uh, very genuine Twitter followers, um, psychologists, uh, people involved in safety, uh, uh, you know the 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 range. But but definitely um, tuning into the show. Very much popular in Sweden. So I went into my analytics and I'm checking my downloads. And I'm starting to see that I was downloaded in different locations in Sweden. And then I found out that the podmosphere is in Sweden or Norway, one of the two, but but the podmosphere. And I'm going to be interviewing the CEO from podmosphere. Um, podmosphere is basically a clearinghouse for podcasts. It's new. It wasn't a beta version. Um, I'm on it. So you can go to the podmosphere and and... You could find the safety doc and, and listen to any of the shows. Uh, but basically, it, it is this gathering of a lot of different shows. There's no cost to it. And it is it is supposed to be pairing up with sponsors. Now, I haven't seen that yet. Um, and I know there's other things that the the developer has in mind as far as, as how to organize shows and maybe even getting to, to some lineup of, of shows. Uh, at specific times, I, I don't know. I'll talk to him when, and he'll air that. But um, all of a sudden, I've, I've got this following in Sweden, and I had an email from someone in Sweden, and uh, so it's interesting, you know, how far the show reaches because it's on iTunes. It's very popular on iTunes, and you know, I'm on SoundCloud and, and YouTube. But I do encourage you. There, not a lot of people follow the show. There is also the David Broden channel, which I use for my university work. I teach about six university courses a year. I've done that since like 2003, and a number of people subscribe there. Um, and I think they they just find my name and they subscribe there. But that's not where these videos are. <laughs> they, I mean, it'll crosswalk you over. You'll see on the right hand side that you know you can get over to the safety doc videos. Uh, but mostly the other videos are all about things that have to do with um, inclusion or special education law or some things like that. So um, I'm, I'm guessing that. 
you're probably more interested in the safety doc unless you're taking one of my classes. But it, it, it's, it is strange like that that one site is, is kind of growing. So you can find me on um, on YouTube, and, and I, I think it's a great way to watch the the show. I mean, I mean to get information from the show because you're going to get graphics that you're not going to get through the audio. And, um, you know, of course, the audio is, is going to be very, very rich and, and very full, but there are going to be some graphics I'm going to pull up. Um, and more definition of terms and things like that. And also, through the interviews that I do, um, I do have a number of Skype interviews coming up. So, you know, you do get to see the other the other person. And there's just more context. So please consider. I mean, all you got to do is hit subscribe. If you don't like it, hit unsubscribe. Um, this show is also on iTunes. The show is on SoundCloud. And, of course, on the 405 media. So before we get any further, actually, you know, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the show. So we are at episode 25. The show is aired on the 405 media out of Los Angeles, California, with John Grant as the head of the 405 media. We started out at the 9 p.m. slot, PST. So PST means... Um, nine o'clock in California is, is midnight in New York city. So, so, you know, kind of getting the, the graveyard shift there to, to get the break, um, into the 405 media, which I very much appreciate it and understood. I need it to, um, establish my show before I'd be considered for a different time slot, which I did and was moved up to a 1 PM slot by fortune of a veteran, podcaster with an excellent show who had retired basically had stopped um, podcasting after a number of years Uh, and then that show that time slot was offered to me so uh, 1 p.m monday through saturday the safety doc on the 405 media out of los angeles and i'm one of an extraordinary league of podcasters just a great lineup of podcasters you can go in and listen to anything from politics to economics and the range and these are phenomenal people this i i download their stuff and i listen to this on my commute in and out of work um i share the you know the digital uh bandwidth uh, with incredible, just incredible people, and I, I certainly appreciate that in being part of the 405 media. Um, I also am very thankful for the support of Sprigio, S-P-R-I-G-E-O dot com, if you're watching this on YouTube. Uh, and by the way, if you're watching this on YouTube, you're probably thinking, what is that white thing that is on your sport coat? It's a button. It is Big Hero 6. It is Baymax. And I got that at uh, Epcot Center in Orlando. So I do have also um, a few other things that I got, uh, you know, a little lapel. Not, I, I don't think it's a little lapel pin, but different kind of lapel pins just for a little bit of fun. Um, shake things up a little bit. So that is my Big Hero 6 Baymax from Epcot in Orlando. Um, but let's go back to Sprigio. Sprigio is the nation's leader in bullying, harassment, and online threat reporting for school systems. Sprigio out of California, Santa Barbara, Joe Bruze, their CEO. If your school, if you're, you know, if you're, your child's school, your grandchild's school, um, if they they can't tell you what they have for a safety reporting system, you you need to say, guess what? Here's Sprigio. Sprigio, welcome to the district. District, welcome to Sprigio and make that connection because it is important. And Joe's, um, uh, the, the program interface is exceptional. I, I've worked with Joe on, on the interface, so it's very easy for students to use, also adults, um, to get information in. Too many of these systems, folks, build a, a investigation-based interface. So basically, the, the, so much information is collected up front through the interface that it's like, I'm not going to do that. You know, it's like you can get 50-cent rebate off these batteries if you fill out this 10-page form. Well, it's not worth it. And it's kind of that same thing with kids. But Joe's done a really nice job with the user interface and um, has actually had information which has led to the prevention of harm to self and harm to others. Uh, so that has been phenomenal against Brigio. And also a big thanks out to ISS 24-7 also 
out of Florida, all these warm weather places, come on. Uh, but ISS 24-7 is responsible for incident-based management at a number of NFL sites, NCAA arenas, shopping malls, and population-dense areas. Uh, nobody really does it better, folks, than ISS 24-7. So they are there to keep you safe, ISS 24-7. I, I talked um, a while back on the Safety Doc show. I had an opportunity to go um, into a syndication ring of, I, I don't even know how many stations it was, uh, smaller AMFM stations across the country. It was a fairly substantial number, you know, 40 or 50, but there were some... Um, I mean, there were definitely some positives with that. And I, I mentioned that in one of my shows um, early on, you know, maybe show like 10 or something like that. I don't know. But but it was something I decided against uh, because I, I just do have a very strong following. I, I thank all of you. I mean, you're not... You're not the average listener. If you're listening to this and listening to my presentations on things like logo therapy and, and Victor Frankel, and you're going in and downloading those, and and you want to learn about you know what the purpose is to write a manifesto, um, you know you you're a smart you're a smart group. Um, you know you I I, I appreciate um, having a, a very inquisitive, um, intelligent audience um, consuming this show and and then taking it helping, you know, to better inform yourself, inform um, your loved ones, uh, other people, you know, who you um, are acquaintances with, and and just helping to curb the rhetoric that's out there. So a pat on the back to you, um, you know, for listening to this show. You're you're not the average listener. You're, you know, you're far above average, and I appreciate that uh, very much. Um, so... But uh, but yeah, so I had this opportunity to syndicate and and decided against it. It it would have had an impact on the structure of the show somewhat, um, and the benefit of, of expanding into the audience. Well, um, I, I do have great exposure through the 405 Media. The 405 Media has been wonderful to me. And one thing you learn, folks, is when you are in um, podcasting and you have an established podcast that is growing. Um, and, and you're able to work with, um, you know, be in regular programming, which is which is very rare, actually. You know, to be in the 405 media, there are a number of people who try to get on the 405 media, and I just I talked with one of them, um, you know, who who has exceptional credentials and, and a wonderful podcast, um, you know, but it's it is it's coveted. And and it just wasn't worth, um, you know, jeopardizing any type of relationship, um, you know, that I have with the 405 Media by branching out in the syndication with another with another company at the same time. So no, I love the 405 Media. They're they're wonderful. The 405 Media does a, does a great job, and I'm loyal to the 405 Media. You can also find, of course, all of my shows on SoundCloud. You can download the MP3s for free. And iTunes, and, and you can go into YouTube if you want to see me, and and uh, you know that that's available to you free. I don't monetize this, so uh, you don't have to worry about you know being interrupted every 15 minutes, you know, for commercials um, to try to sell you home security systems or something like that. So, um, but the 405media.com, please give uh, the station a listen and also your support and then the the extraordinary league of um, podcasters that, that make the 405 Media their home. So um, today, again, how, how, how Children Lost the Right to Rome in Four Generations by uh, David Derbyshire, June 2007. So he, he has a map. So basically what he talks about is, and I'm going to read a little bit from this, and I'm going to put the map up. I'll put the map also in the blog so you can get an idea. It's really well done. It's not a very long article. Um, so when George Thomas was eight, he walked everywhere. So imagine, like your grandparents, they're walking everywhere. They don't have the access to the cars. They're going everywhere. And what they're doing is they're walking. They're walking everywhere. Um, you know. And when I say everywhere, everywhere is not a block. Everywhere is like they're walking seven, eight, ten miles, whatever it is. Um, and, and they don't have a cell phone. They can't contact anyone. It's just you walk. That's what you did. Um, so it was 1926. 
His parents were unable to afford the, the fare for a tram, let alone the cost of a bike. He regularly walks six miles to his favorite fishing haunt without adult supervision. So you take that 1926, fast forward it to 2007, Mr. Thomas's eight-year-old great-grandson Edward enjoys none of that freedom. So 1926 to 2007... So we're looking at 2007. Edward, the great-grandson, is driven the few minutes to school. This happens. My daughter, my daughter, who is a fifth grader, um, ending her fifth grade year in a month, will go into sixth grade, has a friend who is picked up daily from school and dropped off daily who lives two blocks from school. Her parents drive her two blocks to and from school. Um, so anyway, th- this this uh, great grandson Edward is uh, driven the few minutes to school, taken by car um, to a safe place to ride his bike, and, and, and he can roam. They've given him three hundred yards from home. This makes me think of those commercials where they they put the electric fence out, and if the dog goes beyond it, it gets the shock. Three hundred yards from home, like three hundred yards from home, nine hundred feet. Okay, nine hundred feet is not even one time around a high school track. 900 feet is not even one time around a, a high school track. And we're not talking horrible, gang-ridden, whatever neighborhoods here. We're just talking, in general, this is the way that it is. Um, and it's not only that. So, the, so the, they have a picture of Edward, and I'll put some of these things up. You know, so Edward, he, uh, even if he wanted to play outdoors, none of his friends are allowed to play outdoors. They they don't do it anymore. They can't. They can't. They don't do it. Um, it's just it's a societal it's a societal thing. So, um, what is so fascinating about this is there is a graphic again. I'll I'll put it up. Um, it talks about the the grandfather, uh, the great grandfather in 1919, and it shows this this large range of where he could he could walk to. So he was allowed to walk. Um, he was age eight. He was allowed to walk six miles to go fishing, and then um, his. So that's the great grandfather. Then the grandfather's area was was narrowed down. Um, and that was that was when he was age eight in 1950. Now, now part of this too is contextual. So let's think about 1950. We're you know we're entering the Cold War. You know, you probably there's there's an external factor that you probably don't want to be real far from somewhere where you can get to a shelter in case there's a nuclear war. So I would believe that plays into the somewhat. But still, you know, you're able to walk about a mile in and, and out of your own woods. So. Um, so you have you have that great grandfather, 1919, um, who's eight years old, can pretty much you know walk this eight miles, do his fishing. The grandfather gets narrowed down to this mile circumference. That's still quite a quite a bit, you know, mile circumference, uh, where no one's asking questions, aren't asking any questions. So then, the grandfather's son Ed, who you know eight years old, um, he's allowed to walk his own. Um, on his own to the end of the street, 300 yards, 900 feet, not even one lap around a football field, okay, or track around a football field. Um, so it is it is incredible over the generations of, of what we of what we see. Um, of this 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 visual is just going to blow your mind. It's just going to blow your mind. Um, sorry about that. Uh, so. Here's what we run into, though. Okay, um, and again, this is this is from the article. Stress levels fall within minutes of seeing green spaces. Even filling a home with flowers and plants can improve concentration and lower stress. Viterbo University in La Crosse, Wisconsin, uh, brought in a presenter a few years ago who talked about this deprivation of nature for kids. We're not getting kids out in the nature and the detrimental effects this is having. It's true. It's true. I can tell from firsthand for myself. You know, I was, 
you know, so much saturated and, and handcuffed and locked into the corporate America scene up until 2014. And, you know, uh, I didn't, the only green I got to see might be the one plant that was in the lobby. Uh, because you know I'm at my desk and work, I'm in meetings and all of that stuff, and you get re- you, you get removed from nature, and nature is such an important balancer, um, healer, reflect uh, a, a reflector. Uh, it, it's incredible, um, and we do know biologically, and this was this was the presenter, um, it, 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 you know, who, researcher who gave this presentation in. It, of of saying you know you a walk through the woods and and how many kids today have had a walk through a woods i mean we're saying like on a trail like you know walk through a woods raise your hand everybody like very very few and they don't want to do it and why and now parents don't want to do it because i don't want to walk through the woods or don't want, want my kid to walk through the woods and some of it's not because of well they might get lost or you know they might get get kidnapped or something like that well, that risk hasn't really changed in the last 30 years statistically. But what it is, oh, they might get a wood tick or, you know, they might get mosquito bites or they might get this or they might get that or, you know. Um, well, you know, unless you're in the Everglades, you don't have much to worry about as far as the Burmese python. And typically they'll leave you alone unless you, you kind of come after them. But, but it's this thing of being around nature. And I can tell you from my own personal experiences of being out in nature and doing the bike rides and seeing the waving fields as the wind goes across them and feeling the sun and, and the being surrounded by, by green spruce and by green, you know, corn knee high by the 4th of July and, and just continuing to grow and, and, and just that sweet, that sweet smell. Um, and yet, you know, what we're doing, you know, the smell that you're getting as a kid right now in suburbia, USA, if you're lucky, if you're suburbia, if not, you're, you're, you're not getting this uh, because, you know, you are on, uh, you know, some level of, of an apartment building or something like that. But let's say suburbia, you know, what's, what's your sweet smell? It's when the lawn is mowed outside, you know. It is when the twenty foot by forty foot patch of lawn is mowed, and you and, and you get to smell that for a little bit before it dries out. That's it. That's it. It's. It, it, I'm telling you, this is so important to a sense of self, a sense of connection with environment, connectedness, um, being able to reset to a Zen level to have thought. Um, it is a break from this hyper connection to social media, um, but yet you know, we we know stress levels fall again with within minutes of seeing green spaces, but we're not seeing those anymore. We're not seeing those. Um, This is one of those things uh, when you have to shake hands with your arch nemesis and come to some agreement. And guess what? That is the Atlantic, folks. Oh, yes. The Atlantic and I have gone round and round and round and round on some different publications. And typically, I think the Atlantic sensationalizes a lot of things. And and I am looking right now at a 31-page um, article or publication, I don't know what you exactly would call this by the Atlantic. I went through it. It's pretty well done. Although like this 31 pages could easily be 10 pages and, and everything would be, the content would, would still be legit. But basically the article is, um, it's, it's titled The Overprotected Kid, A Preoccupation with Safety Has Stripped Childhood of Independence, risk-taking and discovery without making it safer. A new kind of playground points to a better solution. I didn't quite get that out of that. But anyway, let me reiterate this statement. A preoccupation with safety has stripped childhood of independence, risk-taking and discovery without making it safer. So there were a few points uh, through this, this article which, you know, just, it, it told a lot of stories of individual kids. Um, uh, you know, one, one was talking about how 
Um, you know, some of the playground equipment that was developed, uh, like a tornado slide, for example, a kid fell off of that and had a brain injury, and the, the parents had sued the manufacturer in the city, and there was a settlement. And then after that, playground equipment uh, became, quote-unquote, much safer or also not as fun. Um, and, and uh, you know, well, yeah, that might be, um, but... I don't. I don't. Again, I, I. I think that there are greater societal, you know, issues issues at play here. And I'm. I'm going to pause. So I get into this. So, my my parents grew up. My mom grew up at a time when uh, World War II was going on. So you talk about uh, being out. Whether I don't care what kind of playground it is, and the air raid siren goes. I mean, you got to get home or you got to get to someone's house. And if it's if it's you know nighttime, the shades have got to be pulled, and people walk up and down the streets, and they would cite you if you had your shades. I mean, you could go to jail if there was any light coming out of your house. So you're living in this whole thing, or in school of the duck and cover era, um, you know. So so just to give a context to some of these 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 things. Um, uh, but anyway, um, sorry for, for turning these. It's one of these things where it's like, or just, there's just so much in here and so much, I mean, not that it's completely invalid. It's just, it's a lot of personal stories, but, um, reasonable risk are essential for children's healthy development. How true that is. I mean, you learn from taking risk you know how many kids climb trees these days i climb trees i was pretty good at it you know um but you know what you you learn your risk factors and you fall out of a tree and i had a neighbor fall out of a tree break his arm you know it was set it was fine um but you know it's part of healthy development reasonable risk and we try to eliminate risk from everything. And I see this in how IEPs, individualized education plans, are written for students with disabilities. Of You take away words like failure, terms like failure. You take away report cards where you have a D or an F, and it's just like, you know, skill is emerging. Like, that's the l lowest thing. It's like, no, you don't have it. You failed it. Like, you tried it. You didn't get it. You know, so let's, let's you know, take a approach of, um, you know, strengthening your skills in, in that area. Or maybe you're just not good at that area, so you're good at something else. Um, but when you get into the real world, th this stuff doesn't work. You, you know, these reasonable risks, again, are essential for children's healthy development. Um, I listened to a debate between somebody who thought they, this was at a college level, okay, and somebody who thought that they had, they were skilled and they they were toughened and they were they could handle any debate and they took on um, a veteran debater and within five years or five minutes they were within tears and asking for their safe space. Um, and this this was a male, twenty years old, who was brazen, came into this, um, you know, and and totally got outmaneuvered in this debate in a very respectful way. You know, the other person saying, show me your evidence, show me your facts, and, whatever. and this person just broke down. Um, and then as for the safe space, okay, I'm telling you uh, right now, this safe space stuff, this needs to go. This safe space stuff is, is you do not have a safe space in life. And your safe space, your safe space is going to be out in a park, or it's going to be out in the woods, or it's going to be taking a walk. Walk therapy. Some of the best decisions, if, if you go back and, and you look at Steve Jobs and, and Microsoft, you know, some of Steve's best decisions came when he was just out walking through parks with people, like just doing his walks. But this whole safe space stuff, I know for a fact that government agencies in my state of Wisconsin held um, safe space um created safe spaces after the um, Trump-Clinton election, after Trump was elected president of, of announcing to their employees, uh, if you're, if you're, you know, upset by this, you can go to your, go to the safe space and, and there won't be any expectations on you for the, the day. Basically, you can get your thoughts together and drink your coffee and whatever. It's like, that's garbage. You don't do that. Not at a state level. People need to grow up and deal with these things. And by and by working with kids, I think it's perfectly kid. It's perfectly fine for to teach a kid 
to say, you know what, I don't, I don't feel comfortable answering this right now, or I'd like somebody with me, or give me a break. And it's like, okay, I respect that. But this thing of you can avoid by going to a safe space, like this 20-year-old college student who gets in the debate, who asks to get in the debate, who says, I have a better strategy, and then gets in a debate with this professor and is dismantled, and then has to run to this safe space instead of learning from that experience. Um, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, the most the most important for the children. Um, so so this was um, um, this this was a researcher. You know, going yeah, you know analyzing. Um, uh, stu- uh, child development, and, uh, and and let me let me. I'm just going to kind of read this part out. So, um, Sandstetter again. This is a child researcher, and this is this is from the uh, overprotected kid in the Atlantic. Uh, Sandstetter began observing and interviewing children on playgrounds in Norway in 2011. She published her results in a paper called "Children's Risky Play from an Evolutionary Perspective: The Antiphobic Effects of Thrilling Experience." Antiphobic, meaning if you go through the thrill, you know, like I haven't jumped off this height before, but if I did it and it's, it, wow, it's like really cool. Like I'm not afraid of it anymore. Okay. Um, children, she concluded, have a sensory need to taste danger and excitement, a sensory need. This doesn't mean that what they do has to actually be dangerous. You know, you're not um, putting yourself at, 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 you know, at risk. It's not like, oh, I'm going to swim across this, you know, 150-foot river as a, as a, you know, to see how things go. No, absolutely not. Um, this doesn't mean that they that uh, what they do has to actually be dangerous, only that they feel they are taking a great risk. That scares them, but when they overcome the fear. Yeah, so in this paper, Sandstar identifies six kinds of risky play. Okay, one, exploring heights or getting the... Uh, bird's perspective, as she calls it, high enough to evoke the sensation of fear. I had that playground equipment at my school when I was growing up. The thing was like three stories tall. It had metal bars, and they were all crossed. And if you got up to the top of that, you could see practically around the entire city. Now, if you wiped it out and you fell, you got battered by all these cross beams on the way down, and you landed on blacktop. And it was the old-style blacktop that still had the rocks in it, you know, so, um, you know, the three inch stones. Um, but normally you didn't. I mean, you, you knew what you were doing. You were very cautious, but, um, but it, it, it was a little scary. You know, are you going to go up a little higher, a little higher, a little higher, a little higher? So, um, okay. Number, number two, handling dangerous tools using sharp scissors or knives or heavy hammers at first seem manageable, but the kids learn to master them. When I was growing up, we had a farm. And we had a postal digger on a tractor, and I remember, you know, maneuvering with that postal digger and maneuvering with that tractor. And I was probably 10 years old. Um, and these things are dangerous. I mean, you have to really pay attention, and, and, and you know, the, you get caught in this, it could be seriously harmed. But on the other hand, it, it, it teaches you to be very aware of these things. Um, I, I still have a scar on my finger from a cut, you know, when I was doing some electrical work on my Ghostbusters bike back when I was 10, and I needed stitches. Um, but you know what? I learned, okay? I learned from that. Um, those things happen. So, and, and I got really good at it. I, I, I learned the angles on, on stripping, you know, wire and stuff like that. And Anyway, three, being uh, near dangerous elements, playing near vast bodies of water, fire, so kids are aware that there's danger nearby. I grew up you know, I'm out fishing. I'm eight, nine, ten years old. I'm standing right next to you like a fast current. You know, I've got one of my friends with me, but realistically, you know, you know how close you can get. If you lose something in the water, it's like that's gone. I'm not going in because I'm going to be swept away. We had a fire up by our. My parents had a a place up north, and we had this roaring campfire, and the neighbors would come over. I mean, you know how close to pull your chair before your pants, you know, legs starts on fire, or your shoes melt, or something like that. Um, so, um, number four, 
rough and tumble play, wrestling, play fighting, so kids learn to negotiate aggression and cooperation. Yeah, certainly had all of that going on. You know, we had tackle. We had an open field a block away from my house, and we did tackle football on that field. And we ran different plays, and, you know, and we had some rules. I mean, you're not tackling us ahead, but, I mean, you could shoulder tackle into someone and totally level them and take them down and things like that. And it was rough and tumble and, you know, a lot of bruises from that. But, you know, that was part of that was part of growing up. Um, number five, speed, cycling or skiing at a pace that feels too fast. I've, Yeah, I haven't skied, but I've, I've definitely, you know, cycled. And uh, in especially going down hills, you know, reaching, being like, oh, my goodness, like, you know, the, the wind is flying by and everything like that. And realizing if I wipe it out, like, it's be bad, you know, hopefully I'll be be OK. But but, yeah, you know, that that that, that wind coming by you, that sensation of, of that speed, um, incredible. So, you know, exploring on one's own. Yeah, exploring, you know, what's. You know what's out there in a, a you know an abandoned building. They tore down the uh, the elementary school in my hometown. It's hundred year old building, hundred years old. So you know, and, and this was back when I was a kid. And my friend and I, we went up as they were tearing this down, and and we're exploring this to see what's there. And it was amazing the stuff that we saw. You know, with flashlights and. And, uh, and and things like that in in this half torn down building, and and there are some things uh, you know, and, and you really had to watch where you're going. Was it dangerous? Yeah, it was dangerous. I mean, I probably won't want my kids doing it, but but it was you know we were very cautious, and and I remember like seeing these boilers that they used to use for the coal, and there was this printing press which was way up above. Um, above the third floor, and then eventually, I don't think anyone knew it was there, and they saved it. And uh, and um, you know, just just these, and you go online and you can see these videos too of people exploring these places. Now they use things like you know, the the asbestos mask and stuff like that. But but yeah, exploring. I remember also one of my friends had identified. Uh, he found. The city dump used to be things were just like pushed over the side of a hill until they they you know either went into the river or they built up toward the river. That's the way it was in the old days, you know. And, and there was an old fire truck, and uh, he said we got to go check this thing out. So we we you know went through and we're trucking through all of the brush and stuff, and we finally get to the thing. And I'm like, still one of the coolest things I'll ever remember in my entire life. Uh, you know, this old dilapidated truck, which was half covered with other stuff. I remember an old Coca-Cola machine. You know, it was probably from like the 30s and stuff like that. You know, just from trucking through, um, you know, underneath through this this shrubbery and stuff like that. So, um, by engaging in risky play, children are effectively subjecting themselves to a form of exposure therapy in which they force themselves to do one thing they're afraid of in order to overcome their fear we have a lot of kids right now folks a lot of kids who are entering college who once they are confronted with some element of fear do not how to overcome it except to run to a counselor and to run to a safe space this happens more than you would expect more than you would expect and what's happening to a college campuses students are signing FERPA agreements FERPA agreements so their parents can have access to their grades and their parents can go to their teachers and say, I think my child should have received a higher grade. You know, even though they weren't here for, for this much of class or, or this debate was upsetting to them, I think, you know, they should receive a higher grade. It's like, no, no, exposure therapy. Exposure therapy. We need to do it young. We need to do it young. So, uh, Enough for that. I've got some stories I want to tell. So, whoa, dun, 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 dun. whoa, I don't know what that was all about. So, um, back in, I have a couple graphs here. Back, this is from uh, Slate. Uh, Slate did an article. I will have these graphs, and I'll, I'll link Slate out in the blog post. But in 1940, okay, what Slate did, magazine here, they took six they had 6,000 adults complete the survey. And of the 6,000, the question was, when 
were you allowed to walk one to five miles from home alone? Okay, in the 1940s, in the 1940s, and I'm going to show these graphs. These will be up in the blog. It was between second and third grade. Second and third grade, you could walk um, one to five miles from home. Now I'm going to take a pause here. I had a friend in high school. He played on, on our athletic teams, our varsity teams. He walked four to six miles at least every day to and from practice. Like he lived out in, in the country from his farm. At least four to six miles. It could have been longer. It didn't matter if it was snowing. They didn't have a vehicle. They didn't drive him in or whatever the schedule was where his parents weren't able to do that. And, you know, he, he stayed after and he lifted so the bus routes didn't work. He just did it. Just did it. I actually worked with a kid who had an artificial leg, an artificial leg who wanted to get fit, and he'd wear then um, that artificial leg as a high school kid, and he would walk the three to four miles to and from school. He denied the bus because he wanted to be fit. This is an experience that he wanted. Anyway, second, third grade in the 1940s, you're, you're walking one to five miles. No one's thinking any, anything of it. 1990s, guess what? When does that happen? Middle school. Middle school. That's when it's happening. Middle school. You're waiting till middle school before you are walking one to five miles, before your parents feel comfortable with that. And that's still, that's, that's not hard and fast. Um, let me get into a couple of quotes. I have some personal stories I want to make sure I share in here. So um, that, that slate survey of 6,000 adults had a number of responses, and, I, and I'm going to talk about some of those. I, I've highlighted them. I, I want to read them. Um, and, and, again, I started this out by saying, in July of 2014, South Carolina mother uh, Deborah Harville um, was arrested, arrested for allowing her nine-year-old daughter to play in a park unattended while she was at work. You got to be kidding me! You got to be kidding me! But guess what? This—that fear was showing up in in the posts that people are making, and and people made elaborate posts. I love to go through posts. Actually, I actually have one of my books coming out where where I substantially rely a lot on, on going through posts with active shooter, like feedback from teachers and things like that, active shooter drills. Um, because, I, you know, there's certainly people that troll posts and, and post, you know, things that are unrelated or, or just go on to, to um, you know, get across, you know, opinions and stuff like that. But generally I think posts have a, especially posts or several paragraphs, have a pretty good feel to how that person is is what what their perception is, and and you can also kind of feel the rhetoric and where the themes come out. I, I found that when I did the J Joseph Jakubowski, I analyzed what was being posted about him in the in the um, public forums and where people were kind of siding, you know, with him or not with him, um, and, and why some people are doing that. So, anyway, I'm going to read read from a few entries. One is uh, yeah, somebody wrote people act like no one got hurt in the 1970s. For example, sure, we drove without seatbelts and my brother died because of it. Sure, people rode without helmets and just because your family didn't have an injury doesn't mean someone else was so lucky and didn't have a serious brain injury. We weren't unscathed. America needs to wake up. All you have to do is check your area on the government's pedophile page and see how many live by you. You know how many live by me? 18. This is this person writing this. 80% of kids walking to school alone in my area would be pedophile, would be a pedophile playground. I can protect my kid. I, I cannot protect my kids with nostalgia. Interesting statement. I like, I like, I cannot protect my kids with nostalgia. I can only use common sense that God gave me. So, you know, this is a person saying we look at we look at the past, and the 1970s weren't as glorious as as they were made out to be. Statistically, no, we know though, not a lot of difference um, between the 1970s and, and present day as far as uh, child safety. Um, this was a, another another post somebody made. I'm just highlighting a part of this. Honestly, the only thing that gives me pause is the way parents capitalize are treated. I do not want to be arrested because I left my fourth grader play at a park. So here is a parent, 
who's saying, you know what? I'm okay with them going to the park. The problem is, if somebody sees them at the park, they're going to say, who's the parent? And they're going to call the police and say, why is this kid at the park? It's an eight-year-old. So now the parents are fearful of sending that eight-year-old, not because that the, something might happen to the eight-year-old, but because the police might be called by somebody else in his parents saying, what in the world is this eight-year-old doing at a park by themselves? It's crazy, folks. It's crazy. Another one. Um, I think we we are in the Big Brother zone already. Anything you can do can be broadcast online immediately, and we are also ready to jump to judgment. True, true. I mean, we saw the American Airlines or United, United, whatever it was. I don't. But but the the doctor, the ex doctor who was dragged off the plane, and somebody was recording it, and within minutes it's up on YouTube. And but but we have this online judgment. I mean, we have this thing now where. This can be immediately out there to hundreds, to thousands of people. Um, you know, hey, look at this. You know, these two kids playing at a playground. I wonder where their parents are. And you ask, you know, you ask the kids, who are your parents? Here, here's their names. And then, I mean, whatever. So, um, so you do have this this thought of of protecting, you know, through through online judgment of what are people going to think of me? It's fascinating to go through these things because. Parents fearful of their children going to school, but parents very fearful of how they're perceived and what's going to happen to them because they've, they've seen it start to happen to others. Um, here's, here's someone that wrote, I started caddying, golf caddying, at 13. The country club was seven miles away. I walked there all the time. So, Wow. Wow. So, just a few. Just a few. I want to talk about a couple of my own experiences to kind of wrap this up. Let me get the sheet. All right. Here we go. So, when I was a kid, 9, 10. So we're talking about like 1980-ish, okay? 1980-ish. Um, I biked the entire town on my bike. I would leave and I would tell my parents, hey, I'm, I'm leaving. I'll be back in 2 hours, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock. I had digital watch, you know, back then. And, and you know, and I knew it and I was responsible. And I'd be home and they'd be like, that's fine. Now, if they needed to find me, if they needed to get a hold of me for any reason, it would have been hard they would have had to drive around the town i mean they kind of knew where i was probably hanging out with my friends and stuff like that but it's not like you, they could text you <laughs> and say hey you know like I, i'm heading to kmart um and i just want you to know that so um and no i mean if you got home and they weren't home the door was locked you know where the key was and there was a note on the table saying hey want to whatever to do the shopping or want to see you know your your aunt or whatever you know, who lives in the country, and I'll be back at whatever. And that was it. That's fine. There's no problem with that. I would fish. I'd get up in the morning in summer, grab my fishing pole, and I would meet my friend Gerald, and we would go down, uh, and there was, a, there was a path. There was a swinging bridge, and half the boards were missing through this thing. If you would have fallen through it, I mean, I mean, it's just crazy. But, I mean, you maneuvered it. You paid attention. Uh, but we went down, we had this path, we went down into this, this area, and we would fish. A river ran through my town, you know, a fairly robust river, not like a Wisconsin River type thing, but um, we would fish, and we would fish until the noon siren, the fire siren, the noon siren. You hear that? Then you'd go home. And my parents never came down looking for us, and, and you just knew. You went home, and there was no one there watching us, no supervision. And we knew, though, one time my friend Gerald's tackle box floated away. <laughs> he had a plastic box. I had a steel box that my grandfather had, had given me, um, you know, kind of a small banged-up one. And, and it's not like we were getting a lot of fish. Whatever we, we got, we threw back anyway. But um, his, his box... Um, got too close and it went but you know what he stopped and he looked at it and it's like well i mean this is a fast current if i step in it i'm not going to get out so you know too long yeah, i mean the it's gone but we learned you know and, and you you learned and if you snagged up on the other side if you had to cut your line or trying to get the, the 
you know, your snag out or if you had to rewrap your line or whatever, um, but how close you could get to the water, how close you couldn't, and things like that. And um, But f- phenomenal times. I'm so glad I lived in a time when that was acceptable. And you didn't have all of a sudden a buzz of someone wanting to get a hold of you on the cell phone. That didn't happen. There weren't cell phones. Parents knew generally, you know, you're fishing, but you'd be home. Um, we built forts. I'm going to talk about three forts here. I don't have a lot of time left, but um, we built a fort, and it was my friend Mickey primarily built it at the end of his property. So it's probably like an acre down. It was in town and uh, used, you know, different kinds of wood. It had like an old window, things like that, built the stairs. The guy was really good at this. It was like a house when he got done with it, okay? It was like house quality. Like uh, this, this was solid, and uh, and we loved it. It was a fort. We hung out there as kids. We would go and we'd scrounge wood from the the dump, you know, and bring it in, saw it, you know, cut it, um, anything we could get for the this fort. It was really well done. Actually, the city made him tear it down at one point. The city came in and made his dad tear this this thing down because they deemed it was a permanent structure and whatever so he did end up uh his dad came in with a tractor and hooked up and took the fort down one day but it, it was really something it was really phenomenal for us to do this as as kids and they have our our place and he also had a riding lawnmower as his dad did we found this old carpet down when we were picking up some wood and uh and we we put holes in the carpet, put a rope, and then like three of us would sit on the carpet as Mickey would drive around the yard. It'd be kind of like a ride, but then he'd ride over like, you know, like the gravel and like the sticks. And I mean, so he'd have to hang on his, you know, the last person on was the winner. He couldn't do that stuff today. Um, I also worked with my neighbors, uh, Rich and Jay, and we built a fort in a pine tree. We used flower sacks to put up like, the walls of this thing okay in a in building a fort in a pine tree is not easy i can tell you that and if you fall down it's kind of like that same thing with the monkey bars you get whomped on the way down and we loved it we would sit there at at night um and you'd be able to to see the cars there's a there was a factory nearby you know come out and stuff and but it was cool it was just a cool time just to hang out as a kid and there was a concrete factory it's still there uh, a few blocks from my house, and they had all of the, the these concrete blocks that you'd fill with styrofoam, and they would they would have acres of these things. And we would work into the middle, my friend Gerald and I, into these, and we would rearrange these blocks. And what we did is we created almost like this throne that you would sit in, okay? And we would go there on Saturday mornings. We'd buy a huge two-pound bag of Skittles, eat these Skittles while we were just sitting there like kings talking about whatever. Now, granted, could these blocks have fallen over and killed us? Maybe. I mean, it wasn't that unstable. We didn't have a roof over our heads. And was it an inconvenience when they, they had to, you know, actually move these blocks? It probably was. We didn't damage anything. Um, and that was never the intent, you know, for any of us. But it was one of those things exploring as a kid. And from there, we could go down to the river and we could cross, you know, roll your, your pants legs up and, and walk a foot and across, a foot and a half across to a little island and, and eat your Skittles and stuff out there. So, um, it, you know, just... Just that, that sense of urgency of parents needing to be in contact with their kid wherever they were. My my goodness, my parents half the time had no idea where I was in the city. They just knew that if it got, you know, there's certain indicators, that noon whistle or if the lights came on at night, that I would be back. Okay. And, and generally they knew where to locate me if they needed to, but they didn't. You know, they didn't. Um, and we had a monastery a few blocks from my my house, too. And you can go down to this monastery and they had all these trails. And, oh, my goodness, was that an adventure for a kid to be able to do that. And that was something my, my mother did back when she was growing up. Uh, you know, it, it had been there, you know, for 100 years. So just wonderful. So the point being, as I wrap this up, is... Um, our perception of society and, and narrowing what we expose kids to um, isn't good. Isn't good. Get kids out in the wilderness. Let them explore. Um, society isn't more dangerous. I mean, you can point to any specific areas anywhere, I guess, but you could have done that years ago, too. Um, but let kids explore. And don't sit there and, you know, 
have to be in contact uh, every 10 minutes with them via text. Where are you? What are you doing? Trust them. Let them explore. Give them the tools to explore. Let them try to build a fort on their own. My daughter is trying to build a fort uh, in a tree in my backyard. It didn't turn out the best. It's not really a fort building tree, you know, but, um, you know, it's just it's just one of those. It's just one of those things. Um, you know, we'll give it a try. You know, I'll get some stuff up there and let them try.